trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Yep, this is the place. This is where we revel in wrong think. Sounds like a pretty suspicious act, right? Maybe borderline criminal. I'll tell you what it actually is. This is the healthy response of people who just want to live their lives, who want to understand the world around them, know who they are, know what they stand for, and don't want to be slaves to a particular narrative, particularly a narrative that is crafted by those who want to control us. So if you yearn to breathe free, if you are looking for courage and camaraderie and a willingness to stand up for yourself and assert your God-given rights, you have found the right place. And I'm glad you're part of our audience. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Also, LifesavingFood.com. Probably want to pay pretty close attention to them after you hear the first story that I have to share with you today. And also uh, MonticelloCollege.org, HSLAmmo.com, and Pure-Light.com. Very happy to have all of them as sponsors of the show. Let's, uh, let's dive right in, shall we? I had the, uh, <clears throat> had the opportunity yesterday to complete, or at least mostly complete, a move that I have been uh, in the midst of for about the last two months. I know, don't be too jealous. Uh, don't don't look at me with, with all that envy like, wow, I wish I were you. Because I'm telling you, there's nothing more fun than loading and unloading supplies and belongings and things in the hot sun. And boy, we have done plenty of that this summer. But yesterday we were moving our food storage. And I got to tell you, there's there's a peace of mind that came from that, not just because, well, you know, we're ready for the apocalypse, but just uh, because I'm, I'm looking at the headlines. And in particular, there's a story I just came across here um, that, that just grabbed my attention. Inflation will cause grocery prices to rise even higher by October. Now, this is according to a billionaire supermarket owner in New York. He's talking 10 to 14% higher prices on food by this October. Now, look, I, I, for, for, if you're new to the, to the show, you need to understand. My goal here is not to get people scared or get them panicked. But I want to I sound a voice of warning wherever it's possible. And, and I think this is one of those times where at the risk of being unpopular, at the risk of being the Debbie Downer, you know, and, and not having, uh, you know, warm, fluffy words to, to tickle your ears, I feel like this is the time to say something. When you go to the grocery store, it's, it's impossible not to notice how much more you are paying for food. You notice the portions getting smaller, and you know, heaven forbid, you wanna you you wanna buy some meat, want some steak. Wow, it's I mean, it's it's getting very very noticeable, and and you have to wonder why is this happening? Well, inflation is taking place. 
And I just, I'm not going to go into deep economics here, so don't let your eyes glaze over, but inflation can best be, it's not that, well, they're raising prices, everybody's hiking prices everywhere. What's happening is the purchasing power of every dollar is declining. It's being watered down. And the reason it's being watered down is because trillions of dollars, I didn't use that, that uh, trillions with a T, I'm not using that by accident or just to be dramatic. Trillions of dollars have been created and are being dumped into the economy. And that waters down the purchasing power of every dollar that's already in the economy. So, yeah, it's it's out of control. Government spending and the creation of money that's not really backed by anything of tangible value. That is what is leading to higher and higher inflation. And this uh, this CEO of, I don't even know how you say it, Gristides, Gristides, CEO? Anyway, his name is John Katsimatidis. He is predicting a 6% annualized rate of inflation by October. Now, that's going to lead to higher grocery prices. And again, this is not, oh, you're going to be starving, man. You're going to be wandering through the streets in rags. Don't panic. But understand that whatever you can stock up on today is going to be a good deal because the prices are just going higher. And if you're stocking up on things that you use, it's not like you're panicking. It's not like you're hoarding. You're, you're simply being prudent and putting away things that you will need and getting them at a better price by getting them now instead of waiting for prices to go up. Here are just a few stats just to kind of illustrate what's going on. Um, this was on, a, on an interview that uh, Castamatidis did on Varney and Company. He said he expected by October you're going to have a 6%, have over a 6% annualized rate of inflation. Now, he's the CEO of Red Apple Group, which is a real estate and aviation company. And he made the prediction a week after it was revealed that U.S. consumer prices rose last month at the fastest pace since August 2008. The Labor Department said on Tuesday prices rose 5.4% year over year, with prices trending higher every month this year. By the way, have you seen gas prices lately too? Okay, just, no, I'm I'm not trying to rub it in. I I had to go gas up yesterday and went, wow, (laughs) that was, that was like a punch right in the stomach. Yeah, we're we're up to just darn near four bucks a gallon. And uh, again, that affects everything, everything that gets to the store, whether it's groceries or anything else that you need, any goods that you're purchasing. They are delivered with fossil fuels powering that delivery, whether it's the ships that take them across the ocean, whether it's the trains that take them across the country or the trucks that actually take them to the store. I'm just full of good news today. Now, apparently, uh, the, the Labor Department said... Prices trended higher and higher every month this year, and analysts from Refinitiv were expecting prices to rise 4.9% annually. Now, according to this article, the annual data has a base effect skew due to the decline in prices that occurred at the start of the coronavirus pandemic. According to the department, they say that... uh, uh, Lost my place here. According to the department, the consumer price index rose... 0.9% 0.9% in June, faster than the 0.6 increase in May. And again, analysts surveyed by Refinitiv were expecting a 0.5% gain. So what do you do? 
I mean, come on, used car prices spiked 10.5% last month. That's accounting for more than a third of the increase. Energy prices climbed 1.5% month over month. Food prices, thankfully, that was one of the lower ones. It only rose 0.8%. So, the t- the, you know, this is not the time to panic. But it's definitely time to start thinking about, okay, what are the things that we truly need? Food, water, shelter. Yeah, I think I'd pretty much put those at the top of the list. The good news is there are plenty of examples of food that you can stock up on that are good long-term stores. And it could be canned goods. It could be dry goods. I'm just saying it is really in your interest to start thinking about uh, what are you going to do to put away some food, you know, to have a an ample store to draw from. Not because, oh, there's no food on, on the shelves, but because those prices just keep going up. I mean, you know, I think it's a good idea to have food storage. And I don't think you should do it out of panic, but I think that uh, there there is peace. And I guess this is the, I'll bring it back full circle here. I don't like moving heavy number 10 cans of wheat and rice and sugar and things like that, but these these are staples. But as I was sweating in the sun yesterday and moving these boxes and grumbling about, man, this is heavy and this one's not heavy and, oh, my goodness, we got so much of this stuff to move around, there was also some peace of mind. And if I can share anything with you, it's the idea that uh, that peace of mind in just knowing that you've got some resources to fall back on. And by the way, I'm not just talking long-term food storage. I mean, there are things that I think are good to have a healthy stock of. Personally, there is nothing that uh, that brings a greater sense of, of, you know what, we've got this, than having the equivalent of a small grocery store, you know, set up in your own home. And it, it doesn't have to be elaborate. Okay, you don't need a deli counter, although that would be kind of cool. It's just a matter of when we need something, we don't have to jump in the car, go to the store, we got you know, end up buying a bunch of impulse items or anything like that. Take advantage of case lot sales, take advantage of opportunities to stock up on bulk foods. I would strongly recommend check out one of my sponsors, lifesavingfoods.com. You know, if you're if you're looking for something for 72 hours, if you're looking for a month's worth of food storage, I think this would be very worthwhile. If you want to go the whole year route, they can do that too. Check out the note in the show notes. There's a link in the show notes for lifesavingfood.com. You'll find that at the brianhideshow.com. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, when you go to thebrianhydeshow.com, one of the things you're going to find is I provide daily show notes. Links to the articles I talk about. I do have a link to the article with the grocery store, uh, grocery chain owner talking about how uh, food prices could be roughly 10 to 14% higher by October. If you want to suss this out for yourself, I, I, I publish show notes with links in the hopes that uh, if you're wanting to do a little bit deeper dive into a particular subject, you have those options. I'm not here to make you an expert, and I'm certainly not here to tell you this is what you have to think, but I am definitely offering the best 
information that I can find in the hopes that uh, this will contribute to your understanding of the world. And so I encourage you, go to thebrianheidshow.com. You can subscribe to the podcast. You'll know every time a new episode drops, but you'll also find there's some really great reading in each and every day's show notes if you want to learn a little bit more. So here's one we haven't talked about for quite some time. Uh, mandatory military service for some people strikes, you know, a really nice patriotic note. Well, of course you do. You got the greatest country on earth. You have a duty to get out there and serve it. And, yeah, you know, even if that means being drafted, well, you have that duty. But I think conscription's always been kind of a problematic thing. In fact, I'm, I'm trying to remember who it was that explained this to me. It's been quite a while, but the, the, however they explained it, it really made sense because they said, look, functionally, there's no difference between slavery and conscription, like mandatory military service. The only difference, I guess, you could find is that, uh, you know, a slave is a, a chattel, chattel slavery involves a person owning another person and, and, you know, treating them as a piece of property. In this case, it's the government that's treating you like a piece of property. But sadly, a lot of people have been conditioned to believe, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. We are the property of the government. We are the government, they'll tell themselves. Well, there was an excellent article on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. Why the time is ripe to finally repeal the draft. And it's uh, co-written by two authors, Jeffrey A. Miron, as well as Sarah Eckhart. Here's what they have to say. They say, last month, the Supreme Court declined to hear a challenge to the all-male selective service system, deferring the matter to Congress. Now two different legislative responses are on the table. Whatever comes out of the final uh, report of the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service which recommended that the draft apply to women as well as men, and the Selective Service Repeal Act of 2021, which would eliminate conscription in the United States. Now, expanding the draft might seem like a logical step, since the military lifted the ban on women serving in combat back in 2013. It would remove a discriminatory policy and reaffirm America's commitment to equality under the law. But the right decision is to repeal the draft entirely. The authors here say because its historic unpopularity or beyond its historic unpopularity and uneven enforcement, the draft actually produces a lower quality military. And although adjusting the selective service system would probably not reactivate the draft, keeping the law on the books still harms those eligible. And here they go into a brief history of compulsory service. In early America, state and local governments required men to join local militias, participate in mandatory training, and to fight if war broke out. Enforcement was often ineffective, however, and widespread opposition meant conscripted soldiers were rarely drafted. An early national draft during the War of 1812 met fierce opposition and actually failed in Congress. The first national drafts were instituted during the Civil War and faced enforcement difficulties. Anti-draft riots in New York cost millions in damage and killed at least 100 people. The Confederate draft was infamously inequitable, exempting wealthy plantation owners and accepting bribes from those wishing to avoid service. During World War I, protesters challenged the draft in court, held labor strikes, and evaded military service. Harsh enforcement policies meant that jailed resistors were tortured, with some dying from their injuries. 
The Board of Inquiry, established to determine conscientious objectors' honesty, sentenced men to death, life imprisonment, and punitive labor camps. By the way, we're talking about America here, okay? We're... This is not, you know, wow, well, that was, uh, that was, you know, the Bolshevik Russia or Bolshevik Soviet Union. Nope. Nope. That was, that was good old patriotic Americans. And although public support for mandatory military service increased following the German advance in Europe, the FBI still prosecuted half a million people for draft evasion. Among the protesters were several hundred Japanese Americans forced to fight for the U.S. government while it held their families in internment camps. Dang, <laughs> that's just cold. The Selective Service Act of, 18, of 1948, rather, which established the current framework, has followed similar patterns. Service, service exemptions during the Korean and Vietnam Wars favored the wealthy and educated, and black men were 16.3% of Vietnam draftees, but only 11% of the total population. Even today, the draft remains unpopular. 74% of Americans say they oppose reinstatement. Now, the draft has other serious negatives. According to Melvin Laird, the Secretary of Defense who oversaw the transition to an all-volunteer force in the 1970s, the volunteer military is both higher-performing and more cost-effective than a drafted one. And this is partially because drafted soldiers serve for shorter periods of time, increasing training costs. A 1988 study estimated that the savings on training and supervising were $6 billion annually. And the draft, by the way, also causes labor misallocation. People serve in the military for the same reasons they choose any profession. A passion for the work and the highest possible returns to their labor. This makes it a productive use of their time. The same is not always true for draftees. Military service thus entails opportunity costs. The foregone output is not readily measured, but research suggests the number is significantly negative. So although no American has been drafted since 1973, it still carries severe penalties if you fail to register. Non-registrants are prohibited from federal student aid, jobs and job training, young immigrants lose eligibility for citizenship, and prosecutions, although rare, come with a fine of up to $250,000 and five years in jail. Where's Lee Greenwood? I, I need him to sing me a song right now. Well, maybe I need Toby Keith worse. Most states also link draft registration to driver's licenses and have comparable student aid and employment laws. So compliance rates are currently high, with about 91% of eligible men signed up by 27, in seven, 2017. rather, But the costs of failing to register are disproportionately borne by individuals least able to afford it. Poor Americans, immigrants, ex-convicts. The Selective Service estimates that non-registrants in California were denied $99 million in jobs and benefits between 2007 and 2014. And here's where Sarah Eckhart and Jeffrey A. Miron say Congress's interest in re-examining the Selective Service is welcome. By eliminating national conscription, we can strengthen our commitment to human freedom and foster a more efficient military. I know that's going to run counter to some people's way of thinking of things, and that's okay. It's totally okay to disagree. I look at it this way. Um, when, when, when your government is responsive to the people, when it's actually honoring its duties to the people, in other words, to protect and guarantee their God-given rights, 
I don't think you would have any problem whatsoever finding able-bodied individuals, and I'm thinking primarily guys, to rise up, take up arms, and defend their country, including their government in that situation. But when that government is abusive or parasitic or otherwise just uh, authoritarian and, you know, prone to to fits of of anger and and fits of needing to control everything. I think it's going to be harder to get people to volunteer to step up and say, yeah, I want to defend that. I'm I'm pretty grudging. Two of my boys have had to register for selective service. I got another one. I'll have to do it here in a couple years. It irks me because I don't think the government's worthy of their support, at least not at this moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Hey, when you go to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, you can always give me feedback. And by the way, I appreciate it. For a couple of things. Number one, it tells me, yes, there is, uh, you may have grown the audience beyond the five listeners that you typically have listening, one of whom is my mom. But it also gives you a chance to send me some feedback, and I need that feedback because uh, if I if I am wrong on something or if I am not seeing the whole picture, it's uh, it's smart people like you who keep me on track and, and keep me from uh, go, you know, leading other people into error or promoting errors. Because I sure don't have all the answers. But I'm doing my best to speak the truth as I understand it. So go to thebrianhydeshow.com, subscribe to the podcast, take a look at the show notes, drop me a note if you'd like to. Say hi to my sponsors. Let them know that their message is reaching your ears. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, well, this is going to sound like I'm just going to wallow in some nostalgia, but I miss the days when people dressed up to go about the business of life. I mean, we have whole, you know, Internet themes about the people of Walmart. And this is folks who show up in their pajamas. If you're lucky, uh, sometimes they show up in, in a lot less. And just people don't seem to have the respect for themselves as well as others when it comes to dress. And in fact, I, you know, maybe it's because I watched one too many episodes of Mad Men. But and personally, I wish hats and suits would make a comeback. Come back, rather. I think we have... I think if we just dressed respectably, we would act more respectably. I could be wrong. Anyway, Jeff Minnick has a fascinating take on the decline and decadence of our manners and dress. I think he has a point of view worth considering here. He says, yesterday I was tapping away on the laptop when through the window, I saw a young man walking up the drive toward the house. He was shirtless. Wearing jeans and brogans, do they still call work boots by this name, he asks. (laughs) And I correctly assumed he was one of the crew repaving the driveway of the house across the street. When I opened the door, he offered me a business card and began telling me the crew could repair my driveway as well. Sweatless, I'm sorry, shirtless, sweaty, and a bit pudgy, the young man thanked me for hearing him out, turned and walked down the drive. It was then I saw that his jeans had slipped well down his rear end, exposing him in a highly embarrassing way. Another couple of inches, and he might as well have paraded through the neighborhood naked as the day he was born, at least on the backside. 
Jeff Minnick says, I wanted to call him back to the porch, offer him a drink, invite him to take a seat, and then convey a couple of simple facts. If you're going to roam the neighborhood drumming up business, take 30 seconds to pull up your pants and put on an upper garment, maybe a short sleeve shirt. But he says, I kept my mouth shut. Shame on me. I should have given him at least a gentle hint, for the way we dress often has repercussions for our behavior in society. Now, he says, most of us would agree, I think, that American standards of dress have declined in the last 50 years. Here in Front Royal, for example, he says, a trip to the local grocery store or Walmart reveals many shoppers dressed in gym apparel. Others wear jeans, shorts, and t-shirts, often unattractive and ill-fitting because of the owner's weight. Few women wear dresses or skirts, and a man in a suit and tie is a rarity. Occasionally, there's a shopper wearing flannel pajama bottoms. Now, Jeff Minnick says, Ordinarily, when I travel to town to write and read in the coffee shop or shop at the grocery store or visit the bank or go to church, I wear khakis and a button-down shirt appropriate to the season. Nothing all that fancy, right? Yet he says, In one of the first articles I wrote for Intellectual Takeout, How Did America Become a Nation of Slobs? He says, I noted how one of my granddaughters, while watching Casablanca with me, questioned why everyone was so dressed up. When I explained that everyone used to dress this way, but not anymore, she responded with, you do. So Jeff Minnick says, as I say in the article, if I'm an example of hot couture, then ordinary fashion is as dead as Dickens' doornail. The neglect in our dress, he says, is not so much, is not so much deliberate nowadays as it's simply a part of who we are. We seem unaware of the public image we create in our choice of clothing. And with the exceptions of places like church and work, we either dress for comfort or we simply don't care about the way we look. But he asks, does this tendency towards sloppiness have ramifications beyond individual appearance? In his recent intellectual takeout post, The Forgotten Conservatism of No Country for Old Men, Alexander Riley includes a passage from Cormac McCarthy's novel, later made into a movie, where Sheriff Ed Tom Bell reflects on all the ways American culture has gone off the rails. Quote, It starts when you begin to overlook bad manners. Anytime you quit hearing sir and ma'am, the end is pretty much in sight. The old people I talk to, if you could have told them there would be people on the streets of our Texas towns with green hair and bones in their noses speaking a language they couldn't even understand, Well, they just flat out wouldn't have believed you. But what if you'd have told them it was their own grandchildren? End quote. Now, Jeff Minnick says, I still see people in my town practicing politeness, holding the door open at the public library for the mom with three little ones who's carrying a bag filled with books, saying thank you and treating others with respect. But he says, on the other hand, I also see some young people using the F-bomb without regard to those around them. I see men sitting in church, seemingly oblivious to the pregnant woman, standing by the wall behind them, looking in vain for an open seat. Time has changed our dress and manners, bringing a certain crudity to our culture. Many of us hope for a way out of the decadence into which we've fallen, wanting movies and literature and music to brighten rather than darken our lives, particularly for our children's sake. And so he says, but what if one cause of this decline has to do with our dress and manners? What if we dressed as if we respected ourselves and showed respect for others through practicing basic etiquette? Could those small changes lead us to a better place? I know every guy who's, who's like, I'm not putting on a tie. I do not want to wear a necktie. 
And I, I totally understand. Spent a couple of years as a missionary for my church, which meant every day. No, I mean every day of that two years. I had to put on a white shirt and tie. And I think it was somewhere about uh, three quarters of the way through that, uh, that mission, as I stood there in front of the mirror tying my tie for the umpteenth time, I looked at myself and I went, I am so tired of dressing like this. <laughs> I'm so tired of putting a tie on every single day. And I think I may have even uh, resolved at that time, I will not put a tie on again. I still wear ties. But it's usually appropriate to whatever the occasion is. I do think there's something to be said, though, about the message that we send in how we dress. And and for some people, that may sound like, oh, so we need to put on airs and, hey, you notice I'm wearing all the name brands and you can see that I'm a discriminating person of great taste and sophistication because of my shoes and my clothes and whatnot. No. But I think there's something to be said for when a person takes the time to dress up. And I've had kids, you know, I've watched my kids go through, you know, getting their first jobs and going on to other job interviews and so forth, you know, as they've, as, they, as they've advanced in their lives. And we've had to learn that lesson of, you know, well, how am I supposed to dress? I'm going for an interview and, you know, it's just at a grocery store or it's, I'm just pulling weeds out behind the local livestock auction. But I was always taught and I've, I've encouraged my kids, you dress up. If you have a job interview, you always dress higher than you think you should. You don't have to wear a black tie, right? You don't need to go in a tuxedo, but you're going to show respect for the person who you're trying to show that uh, <clears throat> you too are a respectable person. In fact, let's talk about that for a second. What does it mean to be respectable? Is it, I demand respect? You can see I have a hat, I have a tie, you must respect me. See, I think respect goes like this. If you have to demand it, you don't deserve it. But if you act in respectful ways, and if you dress in respectful ways, you carry yourself as a respectful person, you will command respect, meaning people will be powerless not to respect you because you're just a good person. You're just showing yourself and carrying yourself as someone who is respectable. I hope that makes sense. Maybe it's just because I'm getting old. Yeah, you know, I can sit through reruns of the Lawrence Welk show. I don't even flinch anymore. I wouldn't say I'm tapping my toe to it, but, you know, I used to run screaming from the room. No more. No, I actually think, yeah, that's, that's pretty good music. They, they had a lot of talented people, a lot of talented singers and dancers there, old Lawrence Welk on his show. But I long for the days where people dressed up to go out and do the business of life. And you don't have to be dressed to the nines necessarily. But for guys, you know, the, the grubby T-shirt and, you know, green stained shoes you mowed the lawn in. That's not what you want to wear as you're going about the business of life. You know, put on a shirt and tie if, if you're doing, if you're conducting business. If you're not conducting business, I think Jeff Minnick has a perfectly acceptable way of approaching this. Khakis and, and a nice button-down shirt that's appropriate to the season. Again, it's not putting on airs, right? It's not like, well, I got to pull up here and let the chauffeur get out and open the door for me. You're just showing that you have respect for yourself and thereby respect for other people, as opposed to, you know, showing up in your underwear and flip flops. Hey, it's just Walmart. I don't. I save getting dressed up for when I go to Target. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. It's the hottest real estate market, not just in Utah, but all over the Intermountain West that I think most of us have seen at least in the last 10 years, maybe more. I mean, there's there's this huge exodus of people, and they are moving into the Intermountain West. And if you are moving to Utah, particularly if you're moving to Southern Utah, you should talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Why? Well, because timing matters. Homes do not stay on the market for days or even weeks. you got to have your financing in order, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has decades of experience in the lending industry. From VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, they have the stability and the clout to help you get the loan you need without delay. Heather's NMLS ID number is 715386. You can call her at 435-703-4522 or visit her office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. That's the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, an equal housing opportunity lender. I'm no secret, or I make no secret of the fact that uh, generally I have beef with politics. I don't like it. I think it brings out the worst in people. And frankly, I find, I try to find more ways to exert my influence outside of the political realm than within the political realm, wherever possible. And believe it or not, it turns out there's a lot of places in life that, that are completely independent of politics. The older and hopefully wiser I get, the more I find myself simply wanting to be left alone to peacefully pursue my own happiness. And I know I'm not alone in this. J.D. Tusil, writing for Reason.com, has a great article about uh, deluded Republicans and smug Democrats offer little hope for people who want to be left alone. In fact, he's, he's a little more blunt. Live and let live political types are stuck between cultists and totalitarians. It may sound a little bit like name-calling, but I'm picking up strong vibes of truth from what he's saying here. J.D. Tussil says, President Joe Biden frequently calls out his political opponents as dangers to democracy. And that's an easy charge to make, given former President Donald Trump's refusal to accept a loss at the polls, some of his followers rioting at the Capitol, and subsequent snipe hunts for election fraud and efforts to erect barriers to voting. Now, the current president's opponents credibly repost that Biden and company seek control of the economy and suppression of dissent. Those who want to be left alone are stuck between a deluded Republican cult of personality and the smug, creeping totalitarianism of Democrats. Biden last week in Philadelphia insisted there is an unfolding assault taking place in America today, an attempt to suppress and subvert the right to vote in fair and free elections. An assault on democracy, an assault on liberty, an assault on who we are, who we are as Americans. We are facing the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War. The Confederates back then never breached the Capitol as insurrectionists did on the 6th of January. Yeah, there's a lot of melodrama there. J.D. Tussil says the president's insurrectionists were the rioters who invaded the Capitol in a failed 
effort to prevent certification of the Electoral College vote acknowledging Biden's alleged presidential win. They were motivated by Trump's claims of a stolen election. Trump told his audience on January 6th before the riot, all of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. That's what they've done and what they're doing. But that's not what the people looking at the record have found, says J.D. Tuseal. Andrew Eggers of the University of Chicago and Harris Garrow and Justin Grimmer of Stanford University in a February 2021 paper said, We have closely examined what appear to be the main pieces of statistical evidence of fraud in the 2020 election. For each of these claims, we find what is purported to be an anomalous fact about the election either is not a fact or not anomalous. Not that the bogus claims of fraud had no effect. The Trump campaign delivered a blueprint for losing candidates to undermine support for the winner or even steal the election, Eggers, Garrow, and Grimmer added. It seems unlikely he will be the last to try these tactics. Now, just as an aside, um, no court outside of Pennsylvania has actually stopped to hear some of the lawsuits. Most of them were just dismissed, and I'm not saying that I know for sure that there was election fraud. But I still think there's a lot of unanswered questions. And frankly, some of the audits that have been taking place, Arizona's audit most particularly, have seemed to uncover some real inconsistencies. So J.D. Tuseal may be wrong on this one. Nonetheless, he is right about the fact that there is a cult of personality that is doing anything in its power to try to, you know, to bring Trump back into the presidency. In fact, he says, actually, Trump is still trying these tactics, insisting just this week the voter fraud in the 2020 presidential election was monumental and the facts are coming out daily. So Republicans reward Trump with a strong polling support for a repeat presidential run in 2024. He took 70 percent of the vote in a July CPAC straw poll, up from 55 percent in a February CPAC straw poll. They also conduct never-ending ballot recounts and push a wave of voting restrictions of various degrees of seriousness in states they control. Now, again, I'm going to disagree with Tusil on this one in the sense that um, prop- opponents of, of these voting reforms are, are arguing this is trying to suppress the vote. I don't know that it's uh, trying to suppress the vote so much as it's trying to make it harder for people to cheat the system or otherwise game the system. Most of this stuff has sounded pretty straightforward, but, you know, we're we're all entitled to, to different opinions. I just, I don't agree with his conclusion. He says, if that's not an assault on democracy, then it's certainly an attempt to tweak its outcomes. Unfortunately, he says Biden and Democrats pretend that protecting democracy requires concentrating power and muzzling dissent. White House press, White House press Secretary Jen Psaki huffed on July 15th. As you all know, information travels quite quickly on social media platforms. Sometimes it's not accurate. And Facebook needs to move more quickly to remove harmful, violative posts. Posts that will be within their policies for removal often remain for, up for days. That's too long. Now, J.D. Tuseal says much of the information tagged as misinformation by Saki is, in fact, BS, but so is a lot of what the government says. You think? (laughs) It's not always possible to separate truth from falsity right out of the gate, as demonstrated by officialdom's about-face on speculation that COVID-19 leaked from a Wuhan lab. Once a forbidden conspiracy theory, now it's a credible possibility. Disagreement, it seems, is pretty valuable. 
But the White House's impatience with dissent doesn't stop there. Leveraging concerns about the Capitol riot and social unrest, federal agencies now target extremism. The New York Times reported last month the Biden administration is stepping up efforts to combat domestic extremism, increasing funding to prevent attacks, weighing strategies historically used against foreign terrorist groups, and more openly warning the public about the threat. But Tassil points out the extremism tends to be in the eye of the beholder often conveniently so when powerful beholders wield the designation as a political weapon. The ACLU says in the past two decades, successive presidential administrations have pursued federal programs to prevent violent violent extremism or radicalization. Unfortunately, these programs have had little to no scientific or evidentiary basis for addressing or understanding what are often ill-defined problems and have resulted in unmerited stigma, discrimination, and infringements of the rights to equality, freedom of speech, and freedom of religion. Targeting speech hostile to the administration, says J.D. Tussiel, is especially dangerous as Biden pursues an ambitious agenda, including massive spending laden with payoffs to allies. Biden's plan is a jackpot for public unions and big business, charges reasons Veronique Derugi coming after two decades of spending indulgence under the last three presidents, culminating in an explosion of outlays during Washington's COVID-fighting efforts, Biden's spending extravaganza is, in effect, the final stage of an effort to centralize power in the federal government. His latest policy brainstorm, issued via executive order, will tilt the economy toward larger businesses via heavier government control. Does that sound like a good way to make law? J.D. Tussiel says, no doubt Republicans and Democrats view political dangers differently, seeing each other as threats to America's creaky political institutions. And as it turns out, they're both right, he says. That leaves those of us committed to freedom and a live-and-let-live attitude out in the cold. Which I suppose it does, and yet at the same time, hey, I just want to be left alone. And this is why I practice agorism as much as I can each and every day. I reduce my governmental footprint. I reduce the impact of government on my life wherever I possibly can. And I'm recommending maybe you give it some consideration as well. I just want to be left alone, at least by government. But it's, uh, you know, it's like that pesky mosquito in the room at three o'clock in the morning. It's always whining in my ear about something or the other. Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You'll have a link to all of the articles mentioned in today's broadcast. This is The Brian Hyde Show.